are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Africa Rights Talk. With me is Clement Mavungu from the Pan-African Parliament. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. Good afternoon, Tatenda. My name is Clement or Clement Hebe Mavungu. I'm originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. I'm legal counsel for the Pan-African Parliament. I joined PAP since 2015, moving basically from civil society organizations, global and regional civil society organizations, particularly uh, FIDH, CSVR, and the International Commission of Jurists, where I basically worked in the promotion of human rights and particularly in the field of human rights litigation before UN and African human rights bodies. Prior to that, I was involved in teaching law at the University of Kinshasa. I also worked as an assistant prosecutor and as a technical advisor at the National Electoral Commission of the DRC, particularly when the DRC had its first free and fair elections in 2006. That's it for my introduction. Can you tell us the nature of the work that you do at the Pan-African Parliament? Let me start perhaps by summarizing what PAP do. Then I will explain where I fit in. The Pan-African Parliament is a parliamentary body of the African Union whose mandate is to ensure an effective participation of the peoples of Africa in uh, the economic integration and development of the African continent. As such, and as any parliamentary organ, the Pan-African Parliament has a role which can be clustered into three functions. First of all, lawmaking power. The Pan-African Parliament does not per se have lawmaking power because it is not yet a legislative organ. It is, as we speak, an advisory body, an advisory and a consultative body. And as such, PAP does not make law, but feeds into lawmaking within the African Union system through formulation of recommendations that are taken on board by the member states when they decide at the EU level through resolutions that PAP makes and through harmonization of laws of the member states, including through formulation of model laws and other consultative meetings that the Pan-African Parliament organizes. So that is the lawmaking power in the context of the Pan-African Parliament. The Pan-African Parliament also, as per its protocol, has budgetary power. The protocol provides that the Pan-African Parliament shall discuss, consider, and make recommendations on its own budget and the budget of the African Union. And thirdly, oversight power, the protocol of the Pan-African Parliament empowers the PAP to examine any issue, any situation on its own initiative or on the initiative of the member states or any of the EU organs 
So to consider and make recommendation on any issue, and that can be an issue to do with human rights, good governance, democracy, rule of law, integration, and so forth, as long as it relates to Africa and the people of Africa. And lastly, the representational role of the Pan-African Parliament, which consists in basically ascertaining the needs of the people of Africa and channeling them to other organs, particularly the policy-making organs of the African Union. So with these three or four roles or functions of the Pan-African Parliament, me as a legal officer or counsel for the Pan-African Parliament, I basically have a central role to play, whether for the consultative role, whether in terms of assisting in relation to the budget-making oversight role or representation role. And my role can be clustered in a more comprehensive way. It can be clustered into four areas. The first area deals with providing support in relation to the management of the host country agreement. South Africa is the host country to the Pan-African Parliament, and there are obligations and rights arising from this relationship. As a legal office, I provide guidance and legal support to the management of this relationship. Secondly, I ensure compliance with PAP institutional administrative and financial management instruments. And those instruments include management of human resources, procurement-related matters, negotiation of financing contracts, and so forth. Thirdly, I provide support to parliamentary operations and activities of the Pan-African Parliament. And that is where I particularly provide support in terms of interpretation of the rules of procedure of the Pan-African Parliament. I provide also support in terms of the content of the work of the committees of the Pan-African Parliament, the work of the plenary, and issues that are considered by the Bureau of the Pan-African Parliament and even the Secretariat. These are matters to do with parliamentary operations and activities. Fourthly, I, I lead litigation on behalf of the Pan-African Parliament. Basically, I ensure an effective representation and defense of the interest of the Pan-African Parliament, particularly before quasi judicial bodies and even judicial bodies. And lastly, I provide legal support for PAP interactions and engagement with other AU organs and institutions and also partners. So basically, these are the five areas in which my work can be clustered, but the bulk of my work is on uh, support to parliamentary operations and compliance, ensuring compliance for institutional, administrative, and financial management. As you were talking about the functions of the Pan-African Parliament, you mentioned that it doesn't have legislative functions as yet, right? So there's this talk of the Malabo Protocol. Can you just explain to us, Lee, what that protocol means or what it entails and what impact will this protocol have on the legislative functions of the Pan-African Parliament? When you talk about the Pan-African Parliament, the reference is made to the Malabo Protocol 
And the Malabo Protocol is a treaty, basically, which was signed in Malabo in Equatorial Guinea in 2014 to actually vest the Pan-African Parliament with legislative power. Why? Because the founding protocol of the Pan-African Parliament, which I call the CIRTE Protocol because it was signed in CIRTE in Libya, this protocol only vested PAP with, as I said previously, consultative and advisory powers. In that protocol, it was provided for that five years from the entry into force of the protocol, which was the protocol entered, the desert protocol entered into force in 2004. So five years later, meaning in 2009, Papua was supposed to assume full legislative power, which did not take place because in international relations, you have negotiations which you cannot control. Sometimes with negotiations, take place longer than can be anticipated. And this was the case. So eventually it was in 2014 that a new protocol was adopted. Now, this new protocol called the Malabo Protocol is different from the CERT protocol in that, first of all, it expressly defines a new function for the Pan-African Parliament and gives it content that PAP shall exercise legislative function through formulation of draft model laws. And it does not limit there. It also provides some guidance on the process of how model laws under this protocol should be formulated by the Pan-African Parliament. And the protocol says that PAP shall formulate or propose model laws in areas to be determined by the AU Assembly of the, of the heads of states, but may also do so at its own initiative. And I think that is the first highlight of this new protocol. Secondly, the Malabo Protocol also vests PAP with power to consider and submit and express opinions on a draft legal instruments of the Afghan Union, including treaties, for instance, and other international agreements. And I always highlight this aspect, particularly because in international law, treaties are at the international level what laws are at the national level. So making PAP a stakeholder or a key player in treaty-making process at the continental level is a very strong highlight for the Malabo Protocol. Thirdly, the Malabo Protocol also gives power to the Pan-African Parliament to consider reports of other AU organs except the Assembly, the Executive Council, and the Court. Now, currently, this power doesn't exist. Fourthly, the Malabo Protocol gives the Pan-African Parliament power to receive and consider reports of other AU organs. And this is a very strong power. It is part of the oversight power of the Pan-African 
parliament as a parliament to exercise, to basically review reports from other EU organs. This power does not exist expressly in the current protocol, and it is well spelled out in the Malabo protocol. And then you have a wide range of other innovations, which I consider to be maybe structural innovations in terms of the internal organs and arrangements which are internal to the Pan-African Parliament. For instance, the Malabo Protocol provides that PAP shall have a Secretary General and gives the Secretary General power to be the accounting officer of the Parliament and uh, with functions that are very well spelled out. While in the current protocol, the terminology used is Clark. He's not the accounting officer and his powers are not stipulated in the protocol. You also have issues to do with membership of members of uh, the Pan-African Parliament, which is said to be under Malabo Protocol. It is a five-year membership, renewable once, and which is not concurrent with membership of at the national level. While currently, there's no time limit to membership, and also currently, membership is dual, meaning members of PAP are at the same time members of national parliament. And uh, it also gives some requirements in relation to gender representativity, where it requires that at least two members should be women, while the current protocol addresses that question, but requires only that at least one member should be a woman. And lastly, allowances for members of the Pan-African parliament under the Malabo protocol have to be will have to be paid by the member states where the members originate from, while the sixth protocol provides that such allowances are to be borne by the African Union. So I think these are the details which I can see as points of difference between the Malabo protocol and uh, the, the sixth protocol, which I clustered into basically two. First of all, I talked about different differences in the mandate and then uh, the differences in the institutional or structural arrangements of the parliament. How many states have ratified to the Malabo Protocol? As we speak, the Malabo Protocol has been ratified by 12 member states and it has been signed by 22 member states. But for it to enter into force, the Malabo Protocol would need ratification by at least 28 AU member states. In one of our episodes, there was mention of a memorandum of understanding that you signed with the Center for Human Rights. Can you explain what entails and the implications that has on the work of the Pan-African Parliament? Yes. In October 2017, the Pan-African Parliament entered into a memorandum of understanding with the University of Pretoria through the law faculty and particularly the Center for Human Rights. And uh, this memorandum of understanding enabled the Pan-African Parliament on the one side and the Center for Human Rights to collaborate on a number of issues, particularly in facilitating an increased engagement of civil society in the activities of the Pan-African Parliament. Because as you know, the Pan-African Parliament 
has a mandate to ensure an effective participation of the peoples of Africa in the affairs of the African Union, particularly issues to do with Africa's development and uh, economic integration. Civil society, basically groups of uh, African citizens, are institutions that seek to mobilize and even advocate on behalf of African citizens. And therefore, they constitute channels through which the aspirations of the African people can reach the Pan-African Parliament. Therefore, it was uh, a imperative, basically, to have a platform where the PAP could meaningfully and on a continuous basis interact with civil society. And through this memorandum of understanding, the two institutions or the two partners, PAP and the University of Pretoria through the Center for Human Rights were able, for instance, to to set up a a civil society forum for the Pan-African Parliament. And secondly, the MOU has also enabled to raise the visibility of the Pan-African Parliament, particularly vis-à-vis those students, and again, particularly those who are doing uh, LLM in human rights and democracy. Thirdly, the MOU also seeks to encourage and promote visibility of the Pan-African Parliament through academic publication on issues revolving around the Pan-African Parliament. But indeed, the MOU was also designed, and indeed has achieved it. It was designed to ensure that the members of parliament are continually fed and abreast with developments in uh, the field of uh, human rights. And indeed, uh, through the Center for Human Rights, various permanent committees of the Pan-African Parliament have been receiving technical briefs on uh, various human rights issues, including, for instance, issues to do with developments within the African human rights system, issues relating to the rights of people living with disability, people with albinism, the area of business and human rights, in the area of technology and human rights, and so forth. Has civil society engagement improved since this memorandum of understanding with the Center for Human Rights? And generally, what implications does this have on the observation of human rights in Africa? Yes, I can say that civil society engagement with uh, PAP has improved. It may not be at the level where we want it to be, but I think it has improved and more needs to be done to keep that momentum and even take it to a a higher level. Because as we speak, for each session of the Pan-African Parliament, we are at least uh, assured to, to have a greater civil society presence and civil society working in various policy fields, we are assured to have a side meeting or a parallel forum of civil society where these organizations reflect on the agenda of the Pan-African Parliament and submit recommendations for consideration by the various uh, committees of the Pan-African Parliament. And indeed, this can have a great impact, first of all, to ensure that the outputs of the Pan-African Parliament, which are basically the resolutions and recommendations, resonate with the legitimate uh, aspirations of the people of Africa. 
And we can see that happening. Debates within the committees and plenary are free debate, a debate where members of parliament can also reassess issues which are brought to their attention by civil society. But at the end of the day, the, the synthesis of the discussions is that in which the aspirations of uh, African citizens are taken into account, are mainstreamed and indeed are resonant too. So I am confident that indeed the inputs, the submissions by civil society is basically finding way to, you know, to the representatives of the people of Africa. I also want to add that this sustained and continued engagement of civil society with the Pan-African Parliament helped to particularly as far as human rights are concerned, it's an opportunity to draw the attention of African parliamentarians on the challenges facing human rights in Africa, some of which may not be solved by other human rights organs, and some of which require more engagement, more political engagement, more political push by an organ such as the, the Pan-African Parliament, which keeps very strong links with national parliaments of Africa where laws are made in response to some of those challenges, where budgets are allocated to either fund or support programs that have a bearing on human rights, where oversights over the executive is done, and where generally the interests of uh, African citizens are represented. So this relationship with civil society um, can go a long way to ensure that the aspirations of uh, the people are indeed resonant in uh, the outputs, in the resolutions and recommendations of the Pan-African Parliament. That's quite insightful. Right now, we are working under very difficult and trying circumstances because of the COVID-19 pandemic. How does the COVID-19 pandemic impact the work and objectives of the Pan-African Parliament? Yes, no institution in the world can say not to have been impacted by the COVID-19. The Pan-African Parliament is one of them. For a number of reasons, the PAP has been impacted. One, because when you talk about the Pan-African Parliament or a parliament in general, you talk about about a forum where people meet and discuss. When you talk about the parliament, in short, it is basically a place or a forum where people come together and discuss issues. Now, you know that one of the impacts of the pandemic was on movement, on gatherings. Now, most of the members of uh, the Pan-African parliament, perhaps all, all of them, are not resident in Midrand, and therefore it is it has been impossible for them to meet physically and it has been impossible for them to travel. One would say, why would not they meet virtually, for instance? Yes, indeed, the Pan-African Parliament has uh, tried to organize some virtual meetings. These are just workshops and uh, technical meetings 
for members of parliament, but they are not and cannot be considered sittings because sittings of parliament are regulated in the rules of procedure. And as we speak, the rules of procedure contemplate sittings as physical meetings, not virtual. Now, for PAP to be able to hold virtual sittings, we need to amend the rules of procedure. And to amend these rules of procedure, you need a sitting or a physical sitting. So there's a virtual circle, and that has been the biggest challenge for PAP to, to hold its May session, which got postponed to October before trying to schedule it for August. And I think uh, it might take place in October, uh, subject to the COVID-19 developments, you know. But as we speak, the Pan-African Parliament has also not uh, crossed its its arms. A number of activities that do not require a session have been taking place. For instance, activities to do with sensitization of the people of Africa, even on issues to do with the COVID-19. Sensitization of civil society of uh, of uh, COVID-19. Sensitization of members of parliament on uh, their role in uh, particularly oversight on government's action in relation to COVID-19. Allocation of budget in relation to particularly to the COVID-19 uh, situation. The situation that we are facing currently is uh, that in which the Pan-African parliament as a continental organ has to, to rise indeed reassert itself to ensuring that the measures that are taken at the continental level and even at the national level guarantee the legitimate interests of the people of Africa. And indeed, PAP has not spared its efforts, even in its interaction with the national parliaments, its members to be able to play the role which in the circumstances can be played to ensure that the people of Africa are protected from COVID-19, that the resources being used are utilized properly, and where they are utilized, accountability can be effectively guaranteed in relation to those managing public funds and so forth. Thank you, Clément, for this insightful discussion that we've had. I've learned a lot about the work of the Pan-African Parliament and hope our listeners also have learned so much about the work of the Pan-African Parliament. I would just like to ask you, in concluding, to give your concluding remarks. Yes, my concluding remark will consist in saying that the Pan-African Parliament is one of the core organs of the Pan-African Parliament because it it creates the link between the African Union and the people. And I I will call, it will be a call for the people of Africa to be perhaps a bit more curious to know about the Pan-African Parliament, to engage with the Pan-African Parliament, while on the, the other side, the Pope also has an obligation to engage engage with the people, but the people should be curious, should be proactive to to know more about the Pan-African Parliament, to engage with the Pan-African Parliament and through the Pan-African Parliament with the African Union. Secondly, I take this opportunity to, to thank the Center for Human Rights 
for the collaboration, fruitful indeed, the Pan-African Parliament, which is basically providing this forum where the ordinary citizen of Africa can engage with the Pan-African Parliament. As one of those citizens, I know that uh, the collaboration and the, the fruits of that collaboration are not yet where they are supposed to be. But I also take life, understand life, and whatever we do from an incremental perspective. I know that what is being done is not enough. More needs to be done. And I encourage the center and the Pan-African Parliament to continue working together to ensure that uh, really the PAP can be and be seen as this house of the Afghan people where they can come to seek protection, they can come to seek even remedies, they can come to cry, they can come to seek support in relation to their situation, to their status as citizens of the African continent. And lastly, let me thank you, Tatenda, for this platform and indeed these very insightful questions which enabled me to share about my work and uh, the Pan-African It was lovely having you, Clemor. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musinahama. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.